This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Richard Elilu had no interest in actually reading the Bible. He was a Muslim, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Still, he did figure out a way to put the Bible that was given to him by a Christian to good use. Its uh, crackly thin pages were perfect for rolling joints and cigarettes. He said it this way, he said, papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive, so we would tear pages out of the Bibles that we were given and use them as our rolling papers. On one occasion in 1978, Richard tore a page from the Bible for rolling one of his joints, but ended up stuffing it into his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he uh, pulled out the page of the Bible from his pocket, and he read these words from Psalm 34.8, O taste and see that the Lord is good, happy are those who trust in him. For the next three weeks, he could not get this verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had at one point shared the gospel with him, had a conversation with him. And then one night shortly after that, alone in his room, Richard prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you like this verse says. And that same evening, he accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. Richard's Muslim family and community did not respond very well at all to this. At first, it was a mere expression of concern, but it graduated very quickly to anger and outright death threats. Richard was the first convert to Christianity in his community, and it felt like a grave threat to everyone. Local mosque leaders denounced him on the mosque's outdoor loudspeakers. His own father told him that he would rather see him dead. He had to spend every night at a different missionary's house because of the danger. He left for another community in Nigeria to attend Bible school. Once that was completed, he returned to his home community with the hopes of, the intent of pastoring a church of factory and government workers that had migrated there. But the death threats then resumed and intensified including acts of vandalism against his own church building. The police looked the other way. Richard eventually moved to the United States to protect his wife and his children and to gain more Bible training. And all of this started with a single Bible verse on a wadded up piece of paper stuffed into a pocket. The Bible is no ordinary book. No other piece of literature comes close to sharing the Bible's nature 
As Christians, we are people of the book. And we can't be reminded enough of what the Bible really is and why we desperately need it. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. This summer we're in a series called Basics. On the one hand, these are foundational, fundamental truths that every Christian needs to be reminded of multiple times. On the other, we're talking about some basics that maybe have been neglected or pushed to the periphery when they deserve a more central place in the life of the church. Today, we're looking at the very simple question, what is the Bible? Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to look at three aspects to Scripture today. Its origin, its usefulness, and its outcome. Based on 2 Timothy 3, we'll look at the origin of Scripture, the usefulness of Scripture, and the outcome of Scripture. First, its origin. All Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture originates in God. Scripture originates in God, just like your breath has its origin from inside your person. From inside your person, God's word has its origin from inside God's person. In other words, Scripture emanates from God. Scripture comes from the mouth of God. To read Scripture is to hear God speak. If you want to hear God speak, you don't need anything more or other than the Bible. Scripture is a perfectly aligned extension of God himself. Now, some critics will say this lofty view of Scripture didn't arise until the Reformation. That's obviously historically inaccurate. The two or three generations following the apostles, known as the patristics, held to extremely high view of Scripture. The phrases that you most often see the patristics use when they talk about the Scriptures are holy Scripture, sacred Scripture. You'll even see them talking about the divinity of Scripture. So from the beginning, the church recognized the divine origins of God's word. Scripture emanates from God. It's a perfectly aligned extension of God himself. That cannot be said of any other source of authority in the Christian church. It's the only place you can find that. Now, one of the implications of this for us is nurturing the habit the church in Berea had. Acts chapter 17, we read about these people. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what even the apostle Paul was saying is true. Whomever is preaching from this stage on Sunday... Search the scriptures to see if what we're saying is true. 
We should be doing that with the songs we sing. You should be doing that with whatever you hear coming across your TV screen or your computer screen. Search the scriptures to see if what you're hearing is true. Whatever song you got on your device, search the scriptures to see if what they're saying is true. Scripture is the standard by which all other standards are measured. Scriptures, the scriptures emanate from God. They're a perfectly aligned extension of God himself. Now, as a way of thinking about that, let's travel back in time to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's spoken command, his word, they fractured their relationship with God himself. From God's perspective, when the words of his command are set aside by his creatures in favor of their own desires, then God himself has been set aside. To disobey the words that God speaks is to disobey God himself. We can say that God has so identified himself with his words that whatever someone does to God's words, they do directly to God himself. The two cannot be pulled apart. So if you want to know what someone really thinks about God, pay attention to the relationship with Scripture. What do they do with it? How do they interact with it? What is their attitude towards it? Scripture is a perfectly aligned extension of God himself. Now that's all well and good, but there's a testing ground whether or not this is true in your life. As an example, we might feel rather ho-hum about the New Testament description of heaven. But we are mesmerized by the accounts of school-aged children who claim to have gone there and back. From magazine articles to best-selling books where God is depicted as giving special private communications we can easily operate as if the Bible was not enough. If only we could have something more than the scriptures. Then we could be really close to Jesus. Several years ago, there was an anonymous article written in a Christian magazine entitled, My Conversation with God. And here's how it began. Does God still speak? I grew up hearing testimonies about it, but until October 2005, I couldn't say it had ever happened to me. I'm a middle-aged professor of theology at a well-known Christian university. I've written award-winning books. My name is on Christianity Today's masthead. For years, I've taught that God still speaks, but I couldn't testify to it personally. I can only do so now anonymously for reasons I hope will be clear. A year after hearing God's voice, I still can't talk or even think about my conversation with God without being overcome with emotion. And the professor went on to talk about an experience where God supernaturally gave him a book outline and a book title and then directed him to use the money from the book to help a young man go to school and prepare for ministry. And he finished the article by saying how strengthened his faith has been to finally have God personally speak to him. It's a fine story in many ways, except in this way. It gives the impression that God does not normally speak to us personally. 
and leaves us feeling as though God speaking to us through the scriptures is an inferior, less exciting, less edifying means of communication. The unintended consequences of articles and books like this, sadly, often leave people forgetting the divine origins of Scripture. All Scriptures God breathed. To read Scripture is to hear God speak personally. Scripture is a perfectly aligned extension of God himself. Look, the only being knowledgeable enough, wise enough, and skillful enough to reveal God to you is God. And he's done that. The word of God is the means he's chosen to do that. Second, it's usefulness. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture is useful. That is, it, it yields a practical benefit. And what is that benefit? Well, in this case, there are two benefits, doctrine and behavior. There are four descriptors, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And these four descriptors break down into two categories of doctrine and behavior. Now, I'm going to deal with behavior first. The scriptures are useful for behavior. On the one hand, scripture is useful in correcting improper behavior. On the other hand, scripture is useful for inculcating the acts and habits that reflect God's own character. So the scriptures yield a practical benefit of shaping Christian behavior. This forms the parameters of a battlefield of sorts because there are numerous competing authorities that vie for your allegiance. There are numerous competing authorities out there that, that, that seek to calibrate your behavior according to them. Today, personal experience ranks rather high on the charts. Personal experience becomes the primary directional indicator of what we're supposed to do behaviorally. Personal experience, while at times helpful, ought never rise to the level of unchallengeable insight. Additionally, the rise of sociology, psychology has become an authoritative juggernaut in our cultural climate. There's some benefits to it, but so much of it has come out of an atheistic worldview. It needs to be carefully scrutinized. These other sources of authority that vie for your allegiance to direct you and your life path are not divine in their origins. In fact, very often these are bad maps. Very bad maps. In 1879, Lieutenant George DeLong set out with a crew on the USS Jeanette in hopes of claiming the North Pole for the United States. This is back in the 1800s, 1879. And DeLong's plans were based on maps developed by, by map makers at the time. And like most map makers, uh, Dr. August Heinrich Peterman believed there was an open, polar, ice-free sea teeming with marine life, quote, whose waters could be smoothly sailed, much as one might sail across the Caribbean or the Mediterranean Sea. 
Unfortunately, every previous expedition that had sailed north in search of this sea teeming with marine life had run into a problem. You know what the problem was? Ice. Yeah. Now, you might think that running into ice every time would lead scientists to abandon the theory of an open polar sea. Not so. Instead, Dr. Peterman merely modified the original theory by adding the idea of a, quote, thermometric gateway. As Hampton Sides recounts in the story in his book, In the Kingdom of Ice, he writes this, if an explorer could just bust through this icy circle, preferably in a ship with a reinforced hull, he would eventually find open water, and enjoy smooth sailing to the North Pole. Of course, the trick then was to find a gap in the ice, a natural portal of some kind, a wormhole. (laughs) George DeLong and his crew of 28 men wanted to find that portal. But it didn't take long for DeLong to realize that all the cartographers, all the scientists, All the geographers had been wrong. He wrote this. He said, I pronounce (laughs) a thermometric gateway to the North Pole a delusion and a snare. Eventually, DeLong began to doubt the existence of the open polar sea. He and his men encountered ice that seemed to stretch out forever. And they eventually came to grips with the fact that they had been duped. The team had to replace their wrong-headed ideas with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. They were running up against the rocks or hardened ice of reality. In September 1879, the USS Jeanette got trapped in the ice pack, and his crew escaped and tried to go towards Siberia. They ended up getting separated Some made it to Siberia and survived. Others continued their lonely trek through the ice. As for George Washington DeLong, he died in late October 1881 of starvation. He was covered up by snow except for one of his arms, which was raised as if to signal toward the sky. DeLong was duped by a bad map. And to a great degree, we Christians face a similar challenge, being duped by a bad map. There's no shortage of bad maps available to us today. Watch any news program, take in the latest sitcom, and you'll hear about bad maps. This book offers the only sound map There is. God gave you a book that will lead to your flourishing if you follow it. Scripture is useful for overcoming evil and growing in holiness. It yields the practical benefit of shaping Christian behavior. 
The other practical benefit it yields is one of doctrine. These words that Paul uses, teaching, rebuking, are doctrinal in nature. To to put it differently, Scripture is useful for teaching truth and refuting error. So one of the purposes for which God gave us his word is to inform the mind. Scripture instructs us through its content. The, The scriptures serve as a cognitive and pedagogical foundation for feeding our minds and souls. The scriptures are useful for teaching truth. They're also useful for refuting error. Combating false teaching is a common theme in the New Testament. Now, in the Western self-esteem cultures, pastoral rebuke may be an unwelcome notion, but you just can't escape the transparent way in which loving confrontation is part of ministry of the word. So when you drill down into this, one of the glaring takeaways for us is is pretty simple, but it's often overlooked. What you believe matters to God. What you think about various topics matters to God. What you do with your mind matters to God. We could say knowledge, thinking, what you do with your mind is a moral issue. Thoughts are moral issues. Beliefs are moral issues. Maybe the most famous passage in scripture illustrates this. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In the context, this is precisely the action Jesus is looking for Nicodemus to take. Believe, and you'll be saved. A little later, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And a little further in the chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. It matters what you believe, It matters what you do with your mind. The Apostle Paul concurs, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Belief is a moral issue. What you do with your mind is a moral issue. This is why a preaching, teaching ministry in a church is of vital importance. Our cultural climate tends to elevate observable behavior above invisible thinking. In other words, what you do to and for others with your body in public is what matters most. Private stuff doesn't matter. Your hidden thoughts, your private thoughts are of little consequence unless those hidden thoughts become public behavior. Only then can it be critiqued. But the the cultural cloud in which we live mostly says your private life is nobody else's concern. We import that into the way we think about the mind and thoughts. It's different. It's segregated. What I do with my body in public, what others see, that's what counts. What I do in the privacy of my own mind doesn't matter. But that's not what the text is leading us to consider. The text is saying what you believe in your innermost being about X, Y, and Z is a moral issue. Have you considered that? Your thoughts and beliefs are moral issues. One of my jobs as a pastor is to tap into the usefulness of Scripture 
and to change your mind about things. It's one of my jobs to change your mind, to change your beliefs about things. Because what you believe with your mind is every bit as important as what you do with your body. What you do with your mind is every bit as important as what you do with your body. The scriptures are useful for teaching truth and refuting error. So its usefulness is in behavior and in doctrine. Third and finally, scripture's outcome. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all of this, all of this, is for the purpose of making the Christian proficient in living a life of good works with both mind and body. The outcome of Scripture's usefulness is Christian proficiency with mind and body. The goal of Scripture is to produce Christians who are rich in good works through words, thoughts, and actions. Now, maybe this is obvious, but it's worth mentioning. There is no Christian proficiency apart from this book. There's no Christian proficiency apart from the book. You want Christian proficiency, there's no route around that that will lead to that. You want Christian proficiency? It runs straight through this book. So whatever our problems in the church may be, whatever your problems in life may be, The answer is not that you need less of this book. Whatever the problems are, the answer is not, I need less of this. You need more. You need more. There's no Christian proficiency apart from the book. Now, I want to to try to wrap this all together. I want to package this all together. And I'll do it through, through illustration. How many of you have ever been in a play... Performed in a play. Okay, how many of you wanted to? (laughs) Some of you were made to. I attended a private junior high school, and uh, it was required. I played Asa, the uh, lawyer, in Lumberjacks and Wedding Bells. (laughs) As a fifth grader. I had solos and I got married and the whole bit. Now ask me if I wanted to. No. The Christian life is a play. It's a dramatic performance. And we as Christians have a script. The Bible. Now, if you all have a part to play in this dramatic performance called the Christian life, how are you going to know what to say, what to think, what to do if you don't know what's in the script? I've been around um, actors who love acting, and it's amazing how much time they spend with a script. My sister was one of those. Wherever there was a musical calling, she was there. And growing up, it got a little nauseating to hear her recite not only her lines, but every line in the stinking play. (laughs) She had spent hours poring over this thing. The best ones do, right? The best ones know not just their own part in the story, but they know every other character's part in the story.
Our interaction with the scriptures, our deep interaction with the scriptures is absolutely necessary to reenact this dramatic performance. And when we execute it well, just like thespians, it's a thing of beauty. That's the Bible. It's meant to be read. It's meant to be studied. It's meant to be understood. But a script is not an end unto itself. If a script exists, but what's in the script is never performed, what's the point? What's the point of having a script to begin with? A script that's never performed is pointless. The Bible is meant to be performed in thought, word, and deed. If it's never performed, what's the point? The Bible contains everything we need for the church to put on a beautiful rendition of the Christian life. Change the image. How about music? Imagine you play violin. You're performing Beethoven's Ninth. Or a pianist learning the song The Entertainer. How are you going to know what to play? How are you going to know what to play if you don't have music in front of you? The best musicians are people who have poured over their music. They study it, make notes on it. They practice it over and over again. The Bible is our notated piece of music that we're all meant to perform. Now, we don't all perform every note, just like you don't play every note in a symphony, or you don't play every role in the play. But all the notes that are meant to be performed collectively by the church are written down. They're all here. But what happens if Beethoven spends countless hours writing down his Ninth Symphony and it's never performed? It's pointless. And the world is robbed of of witnessing something extraordinarily beautiful. The Bible is our notated piece of music meant to be read, studied, and lived out. The Bible contains everything we need for the church to put on a beautiful rendition of the Christian life. Now, maybe you're not an artsy type. Maybe sports is more your thing. I got one for you. Think about a football playbook. I once read that Mike Holmgren's West Coast offense playbook was 800 pages in length. 800 pages. If you don't know, a playbook shows where the players need to go on the field and what they're supposed to do once the ball's hiked and all that sort of thing. Now, imagine you're a player. You're on the field, you're in the huddle, and the quarterback calls a play. And it sounds like this. Y shift to red, right, open, F, left, 20, Z spot. Got it? As the quarterback's rattling off the play, you get a sick feeling in your stomach because you have no idea what he said. You didn't take time to study the playbook. The ball is hiked, and you run around hoping you guessed right. The Bible's our playbook. It shows us where we need to be, where we need to go. It's meant to be read, studied, thought about, applied. What's the point of a playbook if the game's never played? The Bible contains everything we need for the church to put on a beautiful rendition of the Christian life. The Bible's our script, it's our piece of music, it's our playbook. 
It's meant to be read, studied, lived out. Every one of us is a participant in this play, in the orchestra, the band, the football team. And we need to know how to fittingly participate in those things. And that can't happen if we don't become intimately familiar with our script, our piece of music, our playbook, and then execute what's written in it. You might be a flute player. Someone else plays oboe. You might be a wide receiver. Someone else is on special teams. You might be a supporting actor. You might be an extra fulfilling your role in the background. All of them are good. And together, we perform God's story, God's symphony, God's game. The Bible contains everything we need for the church to put on a beautiful rendition of the Christian life. Let's pray. How are you doing? How are you doing with it? Have you carved out time in your schedule to become intimately familiar with this script, with this piece of music, with this playbook? Do you know what it's calling for from you in thought, word, and deed? Are you fulfilling your role? Are you fittingly participating in this rendition, this beautiful rendition of the Christian life? How are you doing? I wonder how you're doing with your approach to thinking about the usefulness of Scripture? Do you let it worm its way inside you to convict where conviction is needed, to encourage where encouragement is needed, to reform where reformation is needed? How's your posture towards the scriptures? Do you see this as an aligned extension, a perfectly aligned extension of God himself? It's divine in its origins. Do you approach it that way? Lord, I pray that you would uh, afresh refamiliarize ourselves with the transcendence of your word. that it has its origins in your very being and therefore there is nothing on the planet like it. Its power is unmatched. Its beauty unrivaled. Its profundity beyond description. God, I pray we would bury ourselves in your book. For when we do, we meet with you. I pray the end product, God, would be your church putting on a beautiful rendition of the Christian life. We ask these things in your name. Amen.